Well, we continue this evening in John's Gospel, in John chapter 5. And Sarah's going to come and read to us now. We're going to start in verse 16, where we left off last week. And Sarah's going to read through to verse 30 for us. Uh, But in our sermon later, Graham will be preaching right through to the end of the chapter. So John chapter 5. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defence, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer, Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For for as the Father has life in himself, he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Let's come together again and and pick up where we left off in John chapter 5. And I'll, I'll start reading from verse 30. Jesus said, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You've sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
Well, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But don't think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Let's pray. Father, as we come to this, your word to us, help us to receive it as it is, as the words of the living God, as words in which there is a message of eternal life, a revelation of who you are and of everything that you offer us. Lord, help us to receive your words tonight as this, and so find life in Christ. Amen. I want you to join me in a courtroom scene, because this is very much what is going on here in the second half of John chapter 5. This is kind of episode 2 of a crime drama miniseries that we started last week. In episode 1, a crime was committed. These Jewish leaders saw a crime being committed. A man was seen carrying a mat on the Sabbath day. This was a crime against the Sabbath. It was an insult to the day of rest that God had declared. Now, as in all crime dramas, the plot thickens as the story goes on. Because it turns out this man only carried the mat because an even worse criminal made him do it. Somebody healed him. Somebody uh, told this man who who was sick, who who was maybe paralyzed, for whatever reason, he was unwell, he was unable to move, to walk. Somebody told him to get up and to take his mat and walk, and the, the words somehow made him able to. And so the authorities do some detective work. They, they interview the victim, this healed man. Now they have this, this cunning sort of detective job and this kind of bad cop, bad cop routine that they try. And finally they identify the real criminal. It was Jesus of Nazareth, and they catch up to Jesus, about to make the arrest, and again... The plot thickens. It takes an unexpected twist. Just as they're about to lay hands on him, Jesus makes this astonishing claim in verse 17. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. It is a claim to have a relationship to God of equality that no one else would dare to claim. To to be able to work on the Sabbath, to to restore, to bring life, to, to do good as only God can. 
restoring life, bringing rest. It is a claim to be doing the work of God and therefore to be God. And so in verse 18, for this reason, they tried to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He adds to his crime of breaking the Sabbath a far worse crime in their eyes of setting himself up as God's equal. In a world belonging to God, claiming to stand in that place of the creator of the Almighty is a crime. It is a crime against reality, a crime that demands the death penalty. And the evidence is his own words. He said it right in front of them. It is an open and shut case. There's just one thing these detectives haven't considered. What if he really is? What if he really is equal to God? And that is the question that we each need to come to terms with this evening. To, to think about what, it, what in, our, in our minds, in our hearts, we think about that question. What if Jesus really is equal to God? Is that a question that you have a clear answer to? Perhaps it's your first time to even think about this question. Perhaps to you, Jesus has always been maybe just a good, a good example or a good teacher, maybe even some kind of legendary figure. If he's just a teacher, then you've got to listen to his teaching. And what he's teaching is this. He's teaching that he's equal to God. Now, if that's not true, then he's a bad teacher. If it is true, then he's more than a teacher. If he's right, that has some very far-reaching consequences for how we are going to respond to this man. Is Jesus who he says he is? This is the most essential question. This is the most urgent question. It cannot wait. Now, perhaps, on the other hand, you do have a clear answer to that question that perhaps you do already believe Jesus is equal with God. I really hope you do. But even so, there is still a challenge for us here. A challenge not to simply affirm that with, with our words or with the songs that we sing, with what we say in front of others, but to actually also let the, let the weight of that, the, the significance of that, just fall on us. Because though we can say that Jesus is Lord, there are whole areas in our lives where we treat him as something less than that. Perhaps, again, as just a teacher who can give advice that we can take or not take. Or perhaps as some kind of superhero to come in and help us when ourselves as Lord isn't working out so well. A backup plan. But whatever we think of Jesus now, we can't run away from this question. Jesus has made the claim 
to be equal with God. The words are out there. There's no taking them back. He's confronted us with the astonishing claim to be God Almighty walking the earth. And we've got to do something about that. We've got to evaluate it. We've got to decide whether we think he's right or not. How we're going to react to that. How we're going to respond to that. So Jesus is on trial here. This is a courtroom scene. Is he equal to God or isn't he? Episode one of this this crime drama ends with the question hanging in the air. And episode two picks up in the court scene. The big trial. Jesus stands accused. He must defend his claim. So he, he does that in three parts. We're going to see he begins his defense by explaining the claim that he's making, by kind of unpacking what he means there. Then he's going to call witnesses to give evidence for his claim. And finally, he's going to make an accusation, a kind of counterclaim against those who have accused him. So we'll begin with the claim of Jesus to be equal to God. What does he mean? My father is at his work and so am I. It's a claim to be doing the father's work. And he explains this in, in the terms of kind of what would have been a very common part of life at the time, which would be a son carrying on his father's business. Verse 19, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. The father, for his part, loves the son and shows him all he does. There's a kind of apprenticeship idea going on there. Now, I didn't follow my parents into their line of work. My my parents worked in IT and finance, and my, my grandparents worked in farming and maintenance, and I didn't follow any of them into what they did. And that actually is quite rare today to meet somebody who does. It does happen sometimes. But for most of history and in most cultures, you would learn the family business as a kid. You would learn it from your parents, and then you would take over. When you're old enough, you'd gradually take on more and more responsibility. Actually, there are some of my family who are still farmers, and their kids, and even their grandkids, they drive tractors around from an alarmingly young age. (laughs) And everybody seems okay with this. Um, But they're learning. They're learning on the job. They're growing up and gradually taking on more and more responsibility until it is their time to shine, until it's their time to lead. Now, this is, of course, a metaphor. All metaphors have their limits. The father is not a father in the same sense that human fathers are. He will not ever reach retirement age. But the language of the of father and son, that, that picture of a family business, it is there to help us understand something that is real, that is true. God the Father is sending Jesus the Son, who is in every respect his equal, to come forward and take a role in the work of God that is, from our perspective, more visible, that it is more visible to us from now on. And so Jesus' work on the Sabbath, bringing rest, is not replacing the Father's work. It is revealing the Father to us. What is the Father's work? Well, 
I'm not going to go into full detail here, but there are really two aspects of the Father's work that Jesus is doing here, two things that he focuses on, of what the Father does that he has now sent Jesus to do. The first is giving life. Jesus healed the man. He restored what was broken. He's going to do that in the far bigger sense of restoring us to life from death, from the death that comes from judgment for sin. And so verse 21 says, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he's pleased to give it. Then verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. The Father is entrusting Jesus with a a, a bigger, more visible role in giving life, especially eternal life. This is a big theme that runs all the way through John's Gospel. It is Jesus, the Son of God, as the one who is the true giver of life, the one in whom is life. There is no other resurrection. There is no other way to eternal life than Jesus. So the first side of the work is giving life. The second is condemning to death. It is judging It's the other side of this in verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Verse 27, Jesus has authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. This is a divine title. This is language that comes from the Old Testament, from Daniel chapter 7. And there, there was a vision. It's called one like a Son of Man, of somebody who looks like a human who appears when we first see him to be, to be just a man, and yet somehow in, in this vision he is worthy to receive all the authority that belongs to God, worthy to receive all the glory that belongs to God. And so Jesus speaks of a great judgment day when the dead will hear Jesus' call, when all will be called to come before him and be judged to receive either eternal life or eternal death, and Jesus will be the one judging. So the first part of Jesus' claim is that he does the Father's work in bringing life and in judging and condemning to death. The second part follows on from that, and this is that because he does the Father's work, therefore he receives the Father's honor. In verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Again, Jesus isn't replacing the Father in receiving honor. Rather, honoring Jesus does honor the Father because the Father sent Jesus. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. There is a a deference, a kind of honor that we give people as they do their work. If you think of an ambulance driver, when they put their sirens on, they are doing the work of of driving to someone to save their lives, to, to help those in need. And there is an honor that we pay them as we do that. There is a deference that we show. And we show it by moving out of the way, by moving to the side of the road to let them come past and do their work. 
And it's the same with Jesus, that as he does God's work, giving life and judging, as he does God's work, he deserves a certain kind of honor from us. Now, just hold that thought because we're going to come back to what that honor looks like in a moment. But for now, we can say that, that Jesus does the Father's work, and therefore he receives the Father's honor. So this is his claim. This is what he's claiming by saying that he's doing the work of God. And in defense of that claim, he calls on witnesses. Now, in the legal framework they were operating in at the time, um, you need at least two witnesses to prove something, to prove a claim, and Jesus calls on three. Now, his big point is that the Father is his ultimate witness. In verse 32, there is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. Ultimately, his point is that behind these three witnesses, there is the Father who is kind of certifying that he has sent Jesus, but we can't see the Father, and so the Father speaks through three witnesses that we can see, that we can encounter and recognize. And so the Father testifies in court by these three witnesses. Witness number one comes up to the dock, and this is the Father's servant, John the Baptist. Verse 33 You have sent to John, and he's testified to the truth. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. Those of us who were were here last term um, might remember in John chapter 1, these same Jewish leaders had sent people to check out John to see if what he was saying was okay. And apparently after that, They were okay to allow him to carry on preaching the message that he was preaching, to allow him to continue, even to grow in influence. So there was, from them, at least some degree of acceptance of John. You chose for a time to enjoy his light. But what was John saying? He was saying, I'm I'm one who's preparing the way for the Lord. And he was very clear that he thought that meant Jesus. Look, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He made no secret of believing that he thinks Jesus is equal to God. And so these Jewish leaders are caught in a trap of their own making. If they didn't stop John... They allow John to speak, and John is saying, Jesus is Lord. So that's the first witness, the father's servant, John. John comes down. Witness number two comes to the dock. Witness number two is the father's works. In verse 36, I have testimony weightier than that of John. The very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. Jesus is doing all these amazing things. Things that can only really be explained 
by him being who he says he is. He's healing people miraculously with a word. There is an awesome power at work in Jesus. What is it? Because it's not nothing. These things happened. What are we going to do with them? They're they're there. They're recorded in history for us. And just because we're thousands of years later and we didn't happen to be there when they happened, it doesn't take away from the fact that they happened, that people saw them, people wrote them down for us. We can sometimes kind of come at it from a, a sort of scientific framework of mind where we're saying, well, if, if we can't repeat it in a lab, then it can't be true. This isn't in that category. There's nothing wrong with science. There's nothing wrong with testing certain kinds of truth in that way. But Jesus is not a repeatable experiment. He is unique. We need to think of this more in terms of a kind of legal framework of there are witnesses to this, many witnesses to this. Nobody, nobody at the time was disputing that Jesus was doing these miracles. They were, they were disputing how he was doing them. They were disputing why. But nobody was questioning that he was doing them. And the only reasonable answer to that question of how he's doing them is if he is who he says he is. So those are the first two witnesses, the father's servant, the father's works. Witness number three comes to the dock. Witness number three is the father's words. In verse 37, the father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life and these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Again, they're, they're stuck in a, in a corner. If, if they accept scripture, that what they had the Old Testament as God's word, then they should accept Jesus as God's son because that's what the whole Old Testament is about Start to finish, it is there to point to Jesus. So they they started this by rebuking him about Sabbath laws that were given through Moses. But Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me. Because he wrote about me. He doesn't have just one verse in, in the Old Testament here. He's thinking of the whole thing, of Moses' whole message the, the whole law that they think is the way to life, it actually points to Jesus as the way to life. The law and the sacrifice, sacrifices, they, they show us our need for a savior and, and a glimpse of the way in which we will be saved, but also the, the, the fact that they in and of themselves are not enough to save us. And then the, through Moses also there came promises that God would send a savior. Jesus is that savior. But they were using the law of Moses as as the final thing, as the way to life on its own. They were looking at the scriptures, looking for life, but missing the fact that it was life through Christ. So it's the third witness, the Father's words. And it's here 
on the third witness that Jesus turns the trial round. Now, in our modern courts, a criminal trial ends when we have decided whether the accused is innocent or guilty. I think there's something quite admirable about the way that Old Testament Jewish trials didn't stop there. That, that they, they did decide whether the accused is innocent or guilty, but then they carried on, and they continued until they got to the bottom of what really happened, till the, the real criminal was found. And so Jesus, in, in a kind of a preview of the big story of his whole life, he moves from being falsely accused to being found innocent to then standing in the position of judge. Having defended his own claim, he makes a counterclaim against those who accused him. That the real crime is not his, it's theirs. And this is the real crime. This is what he thinks is the real crime in verse 39. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. The crime is refusing to come to Jesus against the clear evidence that is laid before us. And as he turns it around, the witnesses that they tried to call end up testifying against them. Your accuser is Moses, who who you're appealing to. In trying to prove that Jesus has rejected the words of God, they reveal that, in fact, that it is they who's rejected what God has said. They've twisted it into something that it was never intended to be. And as Jesus turns this round onto those who question his claims, it's only right that we let him turn it round on us too. We let the word of God question us here. Because it's not just the Jewish leaders on trial, it's you on trial. It's me on trial. Do we give Jesus the honor that he deserves as he does God's work? Or to ask it in the way in which it's described here, do you hear Jesus' words as the words of God? I think we're now in a bit of a better place to pick up what it means to honor Jesus. Just as we would honor the ambulance driver by moving to the side of the road, what is it that we do to honor Jesus? Well, here, in, this, in these verses, I think honoring Jesus is very closely tied to hearing Jesus. But that's what, what he keeps driving at. In verse 25, it is those who hear the voice of Jesus who will live. Now, there's a way of reading the Bible that is a crime in Jesus' eyes that dishonors him. And it's this. It's looking for life, but not through Jesus. On the day Jesus 
judges. What matters will be whether we have looked for life through Jesus. And the appeal is here. As he's accusing, he's not saying this is the end for you. It is an appeal. Hear Jesus now. Look for life in him now because if we don't hear him now in his work of giving life, then we will hear from him again one day in his work of condemning to death. When you read the Bible, what question do you come with? What is it that you are looking to find? How can I find life? How can I improve my life? How can I make things better? How can I make things easier for myself? How can I cope? How can I find life? Or how can I find life through Jesus? Because that's the way he wants us to read it. That's the way it was written. What they were doing was something that we can so easily slip into. To, to read the Bible looking for, for tips, looking for life hacks, rather than looking to meet Jesus. So using the Bible to derive out a set of, of rules for a lifestyle to follow, to try and build something better, something like an everlasting Sabbath rest, a, a perfect utopian world for ourselves. Now, there's a version of this where we do it even without turning to the Bible, where we try and make up our own rules. But here Jesus is speaking particularly about when we try and twist God's own words to that end. Trying to find life without Jesus. Trying to find a world that is restored by us, not by Jesus. And on Judgment Day... Moses and the other writers of the Bible will stand up in the court and say to all who read it that way, you completely missed our point. We were talking about Jesus. If we read the Bible looking for life without Jesus, he is dishonored by that. It's like trying to to drive in front of the ambulance he's driving, trying to trying to push him out of it and to do the job ourselves, ill-equipped as we are. Jesus gets reduced to a side character in our own personal quests to build our own kind of Sabbath utopia. And he knows why we read it that way as well. He knows what attracts us to those ways of reading the Bible, those ways of looking for life in ways that don't honor Jesus. And it's that thing deep down in all of us, hidden away in our hearts, that wants the honor for ourselves. In verse 44, how can you believe since you accept glory from one another? But don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. We want people to pull to the side of the road and let us past. We want people to hear our words. We want, we want to be the ones that bring life and condemn others. 
And so we are attracted to, to ways of reading the Bible that lead to people praising us rather than us praising Jesus. We look for ways to prove our respectability, our worthiness of honor as doers of good. We have that inward desire for the honor that belongs to Jesus. And it leads us into trying to do God's work for him, trying to step into God's place as givers of life and the judges of things. There is something that is commendable. There is a right instinct in coming to the Bible looking for something helpful, looking for something life-giving. There is something good in that, but it has been twisted. Because the answer is not found in a pattern of rules to follow or an example to copy or a lifestyle to live. Jesus is so much more than this. He is the Son of God. He is equal to God. He is sent by the Father for the awesome, impossible task for us of giving life, of the work of giving us eternal life by giving his life in our place, by taking our condemnation, our judgment that we deserve, and so that on the day of judgment, all that he has for those who have looked for life in him is life abundantly, everlasting life, life to the full. That is why when we open our Bibles, we are looking for Jesus. That is why when we are looking for life, we are looking for life through Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the Son that you sent, your beloved Son, your one and only Son, in every way divine, in every way God. Come to us, come as one of us, come to die in our place and so bring us life. Lord, we thank you for the work that you have sent him to do, that he has done, that he has completed. And we pray that you would help each one of us to come when we open the Bible, to come with this attitude, to come seeking life in Christ, to come not looking for ways in which we can achieve life for ourselves, but to come and find the gift of life in Christ, your Son, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.